Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, there are reasons that so much news media is consumed with crime. Not just any crime, not wage theft, not lethal pollution, but street crime, random individual crime. If it bleeds, it leads. Journalism draws eyes to the set, doesn't bother advertisers, is cheap to produce, and lets news outlets look as though they're tracking an important event in real time and pretend as though they're protecting real people. As they forcibly distract from actual humane efforts to respond to the ongoing crises, homelessness, poverty, addiction, that lead to crime. But those are less cheap and easy to cover than cops and robbers. It's a story as old as journalism, but it's still messed up. We'll talk about that with activist and writer Josmar Trujillo, working now with Copwatch Media, a community-based project that reports on the effects of hyper-policing on communities. That's coming up, but first, a look back at recent press. Rising prices affect practically everybody, so it's not surprising that there's been a drumbeat of reports in the corporate media laying out the factors contributing to inflation, as well as its economic and political consequences. But while the media cite many legitimate factors, including pandemic-induced effects on supply and demand— Their choices of which causes to emphasize can have political and economic consequences of their own. Writing for FAIR.org, Inez Santos and Luca Goldmansour looked at six months of coverage across seven primetime TV and public radio news shows. And what they found is that segments on inflation put far more emphasis on the impact of labor shortages and social spending as driving up the cost of labor than on the impact of corporate profit-taking. The economy, in other words, was presented as a zero-sum game between workers and consumers, who appear to be intractably at odds if corporate profits are left out of the equation. What's interesting is that during that same period, the same news shows showed themselves capable of hearing workers' demands for higher wages and better conditions when the coverage was framed as being about the great resignation or during the coverage scant as it was of striketober when a kind of wave of labor militancy was sweeping throughout the country. So, as Santos and Goldmansour point out, there's an inconsistency in coverage of the same labor market trends. When the shows were covering inflation, the tight labor market was mostly treated with the cool calculation of market logic. But on the comparatively rare occasions when the shows were covering the grievances and demands of workers, which are widely popular demands, given that most consumers are also workers as well, those reports showed a more human side to what they were elsewhere presenting as kind of numbers on a scorecard. And they mentioned the record profits of corporations. 
So the upshot is, despite the mounting evidence that corporate greed plays a significant role in rising prices, the shows, ABC World News Tonight, CBS Evening News, CNN Situation Room, Fox Special Report, MSNBC's The Beat, NBC Nightly News, and NPR's All Things Considered, they all tended to focus on social spending as a driver of inflation and frame debates both around whether the already passed stimulus bills were responsible for inflation and whether Build Back Better would worsen it. Their coverage of strikes and labor action showed that the shows are capable of hearing the concerns of workers bargaining collectively when they choose to do that. But that message is gutted in the more day-to-day coverage about what's making it harder for people to put food on the table because that's being centered, explicitly or not, around low-wage workers just saying enough is enough. Facing coronavirus pandemic, Trump suspends immigration laws and showcases vision for a locked-down border. That's how the Washington Post in April of 2020 headlined a story on Donald Trump's invocation of Title 42 a provision that authorizes emergency action against contagious disease to, as the Post described it, implement the kind of strict enforcement regime at the U.S. southern border he has long wanted, suspending laws that protect minors and asylum seekers. It was, the paper said, a pilot test for the impact of the more draconian measures he has long advocated. Okay, two years later, the policy is still in place, But as Dorothy Benz wrote recently for FAIR.org, the Washington Post's concerns are entirely different. In their March 24th piece, Biden faces influx of migrants at the border amid calls to lift limits that aided expulsions. The prospect of Title 42 being lifted was, quote, stirring fears that the Biden administration will face an even larger influx, close quote draconian to pragmatic. What a difference an administration makes. And finally, when superpowers are threatening world-ending war and billionaires are buying up means of communication, what would you ask for from a free press? A gasp, at least, of support for free inquiry and speech and debate? We'll let the record show that what we're getting is the likes of Bloomberg's April 1st op-ed, To save democracy, we need a few good dictators. If you still needed a reason to put down the paper and pick up some independent news sources, that would be it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. When the news got out that someone had shot people in New York City's subway system, many of us knew just what would come next, and we were not surprised. Immediate, urgent calls for more police and more policing, for tougher treatment of homeless and or mentally ill people. Forget tolerance or empathy or social services, because look where that gets us. It's an argument that we've heard for decades, but it's not an abstract debate. Just because patterns and practices are old 
doesn't mean their harms are not fresh. So yes, it matters very much whether the news convinces people that they've just been saved from lethal threat by, as the New York Times explained, hundreds of officers from a multitude of agencies using methods as modern as scrutinizing video from surveillance cameras and parsing electronic records, and as old-fashioned as a wanted poster. And it matters how that tees up your reaction to New York City Mayor Eric Adams' declaration of the suspect that, quote, if all goes well, he will never see the outside of a prison cell again, close quote, as unmitigated celebration and a renewed sense of security. Josmar Trujillo is an activist and writer. He works with Cop Watch Media, a community-based project that does print and video reporting about law enforcement's effects on hyper-policed communities. He joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome back to Counterspan, Josmar Trujillo. Great to be back. Hi, Janine. Yeah. Well, okay, so it seems worth talking about the Frank James, the suspect in this uh, subway shooting, that coverage, in part because it was so boilerplate and and it shows the the bare bones of a conversation or what pretends to be a conversation that we have seen countless times. What would you say were like the key markers here? What made this sort of classic propaganda? Yeah, so the subway shooting incident was a little bit of a mix of propaganda and also a little bit of a throwback to big crisis moments, not quite at the level of 9-11, but moments of panic, like sheer panic. Mm-hmm. So for the last couple of years, local media, not just in New York City, but around the country have been, you know, spreading propaganda, you know, inciting fear and kind of pushing the conversation away from the issue of Black Lives Mattering or, or social justice and kind of towards this idea that we're all not safe. A subway shooting, because it's in a public space where millions of people, you know, jump on a transit system to go to work, to, to go around the city, was treated in, that, in a way like, you know, it was an attack on the entire city. So it had that extra element of fear, of panic, that this could happen to anyone, anywhere. Um, and that kind of escalated, I guess, the the level at which the propaganda operated. Now, some of the things that were clear where one, the NYPD was thrust into the leading role to be some agency that's that's there in the in the forefront looking to you know bring the bad guy into custody and to keep us all safe. And the NYPD at this moment like not only didn't stop the subway shooting from happening, even though thousands of police officers have been uh, added into the subway system and there's cameras in every subway station in New York City, uh, but we're also unable to capture him and. Part of the propaganda was, one, putting them in the forefront to say they're going to stop this guy, they're going to catch this guy, which they didn't either. But then the media also just ignored and politely just overlooked the fact that of, of what the NYPD was unable to do and that the suspect uh, – and he, we should note that he's a suspect because because cameras in the subway weren't working. We don't even have clear footage that he did what he did. But the, the fact that he was suspected of doing it, he called the authorities on himself. Uh, after 30 hours of walking around some of the most densely populated parts of the city in broad daylight, 
using the subway system for hours after the incident where you would think that police would be looking on him. I mean, this spectacular failure of public safety was on full display and the media not only ignored it, but afterwards still managed to somehow credit the NYPD and the brave men and women of the NYPD for capturing the suspect while begrudgingly noting that he actually did call, he, he was captured, he was seen by, you know, regular people on the street who had to point out to police officers that he was on the street, um, but that he also had to, at some point, just call, call crime stoppers on himself. And that was, to me, one of the most amazing things, is this idea that not only will the media always lionize the cops, but when the cops are clearly inept and clearly not doing what they're theoretically supposed to do, that the media will cover for them and, and uh, you know, kind of politely uh, omit that failure. And it's so important because this isn't a moment where we're just talking about an event that happened and made people scared. It's it's linked to solutions, and the solution is more police. So it's meaningful. It's not just like, oh, we should call out cops because their crackerjack work didn't actually, you know, wind up apprehending this suspect. It's because we know and we saw it's already happened. The solution has already been called for, and it's more police and more policing. So it's extra meaningful that that actually doesn't work. Forget the ideology for a moment. It just doesn't seem to work in terms of what people are claiming it works for. Yeah, p- police enjoy a really a really convenient arrangement in terms of perception of crime and, and, and responsibility for keeping the pu- public safe. On the one hand, when crime goes down, when, when a crime stat goes down one percentage point, they'll hold a press conference and pat themselves on the back and say, look at us, you know, you should praise us. We're the men and women of the NYPD and we keep you safe. Look at the crime stats going down, which they did for many years as crime continued to decline in New York City. But when crime goes up and some crime categories have gone up because of the pandemic, that's another conversation of uh, right. the fact that the media has right. failed to kind of factor in the pandemic effect into, you know, some crime categories going up and also across the, across the city, uh, which was predictable. But when crime goes up, you know, police aren't then, you know, you would say, well, if, if police deserve credit when crime goes down, whose responsibility is it when crime goes up? The police are nowhere to be found. Then they'll point the fingers at anyone else. And in the case of the NYPD, there's a big conversation about bail reform, a really disingenuous conversation about, you know, some of the moderate reforms that were passed in New York State about, uh, you know, incarceration that completely fabricated, have no basis in, in any evidence at all, but have been, you know, used to, to blame reforms for causing crime. Um, and so they, they push blame for crime increases on everyone else, uh, Black Lives Matter, protests, social justice movements, anything except themselves. So it's kind of like a heads we win and tails you lose. They, all never, they only get credit for when things go right in terms of crime stats and, and when things go wrong. It's the fault of uh, social justice movements. Yeah. Well, let's lateral into media because it's like such a cooperative relationship. You know, there's kind of a sideways acknowledgement from reporters that more police don't actually make people more safe, but they make people feel more safe. And that perception is what we're going to address. It's very, um, you know, shadows on the cave wall. Like, we're not going to actually deal with safety. We're going to deal with 
perceptions of safety. And that's why I feel like media are so core to this conversation. The stories that reporters tell people have a lot to do with what people believe about what law enforcement does, what it doesn't do, who's harmful, who's not harmful, and all of that. And people should understand the term propaganda, which I know is being used now more readily. It's not just an example of when police are overly quoted in the in, in a story or used as the only source in the story or when there is favorable coverage or bias given to them. The stories are the symptoms. The, the core of propaganda is that symbiotic relationship between the press and police. Police rely on press and press rely on police. The press, you know, for example, local reporters here rely on access to, to police officers to get access to crime scenes, to get information that is not public, yet publicly available because the police hold so much information, you know, public information before it goes out. That access to be able to say, hey, can we, you know, interview you for this new policy that's going to affect, uh, are we, can we go for a ride along for, you know, for, mm-hmm. this, for this, this operation that you're planning? This symbiotic relationship that's at the core of propaganda. So the stories that you see are the are the products of that relationship, and that relationship I think is what we need to talk about more and more. Why the media is relying not all of the media, but much of the mainstream and corporate media, and especially the local media. They're very dependent on access to police officers or, or police officials, and then how police also utilize the press. Utilize the press to one stoke fear when they need to, because fear is a is a really crucial element to kind of validate police authority and how that kind of goes both ways. And it's an unspoken relationship, but it goes on and on. And it it creates an element uh, of fear that makes the public much more malleable in terms of what they'll allow to happen without being skeptical, uh, whether you want to bring back stop and frisk or you want to start, you know, you want to bring drones to New York City, you know, for, for the police. Any kind of return to a, a horrible form of policing or an escalation of a new form of policing, you know, depends on people being properly scared enough. And, and police benefit from it because they'll have their budgets expanded, which just recently happened yesterday. The, the mayor is proposing more funding for the NYPD, but also it sells newspapers. You know, it gets clicks. It gets people to, you know, to buy into this narrative that the media has been cultivating for the better part of two years. And you can even say longer than that, like many, many years. So there's a benefit for both uh, both sides of that arrangement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so much I could say. Um, <laughs> I do think that honest, observant people would acknowledge that the game-changing media on police brutality, on police racism, has not come from salaried journalists who are charged with and constitutionally protected for speaking truth to power. It's not come from there. It's come from, we're calling them citizen journalists. What they are are regular people on the street with a phone who, you know, I was going to say not afraid to use it, but I think often they are afraid to use it, but they just know that if they don't record this, They recognize that they're now the historical record. And if they don't record this and show it, then people are going to deny that it happened. And so if we could just talk about the redefining of journalism, the fact that if we're talking about police brutality and aberrations by police, it matters so much that just regular folks are creating media and reporting about it. Absolutely. I mean, and, and this 
goes back, I mean, you know, in a very recent history, this goes back to Ferguson. This goes back to the kind of highs of the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the recording of the of the interaction that killed Eric Garner in, in Staten Island, the Ferguson uh, protesters who were, you know, using social media to, to shoot images out to the world of what the uh, the police department was doing in response to protests. So you can call it citizens. You can call it, you know, we, we use cop watch uh, yep. because cop watch is a form of people using cameras to be vigilant of police and, and tracking what they're saying, because unfortunately we live in a society where police, you know, police's word is always taking at a higher value than a, than a regular person's word. So you need that camera, you need that evidence, but you also need to show the world, you know, what's happening. We use cop watch, we use citizen. You can just say the public, you right. know, you can say, right. some people will say activists. You know, I, I never got a card in the mail that said I was an activist. <laughs> I was a, I was a person who was just, you know, I started to, to give a crap about what was going on and I started to do things about it. You know, it's regular people being able to document what's going on. And in particular with police, because policing is most harmful in communities of color. It's those people in communities of color, low income communities of color that have the most experience, the most perspective, the most context to be able to speak about this and not just write about it for a one time story because, you know, the story is hot or, you know, an editor told you to go over to Harlem and check out what's going on. But because maybe you live there and maybe you know what's going on, maybe you have connections in the community that enlighten your, your understanding of what, what, what's happening to just a one-time incident to, to a continuation of, of a historical oppressive system. So I think it's really important that that conversation of you know us not relying on salaried, constitutionally protected reporters or character-carrying members of the press to understanding that storytelling is about people. And that's the, the most important element that we can start from. And in terms of policing, there are certain people that are policed more than others. And if we acknowledge that, then we also have to acknowledge that they might be the better suited ones to have an honest conversation about it. Absolutely. You know, if video evidence were enough, we wouldn't be in conversation right now. We've seen videos. We have we have video. Rodney King, we have video. Mm. Video exists. No, I'll, I'll never forget what you told me once. I think mm-hmm. in some event that we, we saw you at where you said evidence isn't the problem. It's never been about a lack of evidence. Like we just need to compile more evidence, more proof. You know, it's important to document things, but it's also important to understand that this is not just about winning over people with the rationality of our argument, but really understanding this is a war of information and a, and, and a, a, literal, a, a literal war as well. I mean, there's physical violence, you know, death. There are things that are happening in in communities at the hands of the police. There is a literal figurative war that's happening. And in those cases, it's not about, you know, you sitting down and having an honest intellectual debate with someone who will, you know, concede when you have a point. They will not concede. The people who are against this are not willing to acknowledge that bail reform has not contributed to crime. It's beside the point. Facts don't matter to them. It's just about pushing an agenda forward and being the loudest and the most aggressive, uh, you know, in that way. And if we under, I think if we understand that, I think we'll also have a better understanding of how to, to counteract that. Well, precisely. And thank you very much, Josmar, for that. And I, I, and I just want to ask you, finally, if you do think about, you know, we're not anti-reporter, we're not anti-journalism. If, if you think about what useful journalism around this set of issues would look like or what it would include. What are we talking about? How do we how do we get off the dime on this conversation? Um, you know, I think 
there need well this is, this is a long conversation <laughs> i mean we could have a big conversation uh you know a couple of days worth of conversations about that but there's a, been kind of a reckoning from what i've seen in media about at the very basic level diversity in the newsroom right like just a, a, acknowledging that right not to mention people aren't moving enough in that direction but acknowledging that you know white supremacy is not just an issue of people in power in police departments or in government but also in you know the people who shape and tell the stories of our of our society but there's this this idea also that it's it's not just about diversity it's it's also about kind of tearing down the walls of saying like this person is a reliable person because this person has a press pass and this person is uh you know a crazy or a fringe person because they put their stuff on social media there has to be i think room for us to understand that citizen journalism and and journalism can be made stronger by not thinking of ourselves in these silos of not thinking of ourselves as real reporters and people who are you know, really objective and people who are not credible and start to open up that conversation. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of stuff since the uh, the Capitol riots where there's this, uh, this whole battle for information about who's right and who's wrong. And, you know, there's a deeper conversation about, you know, censorship and all of this stuff. But I think we have to understand that uh, journalism is something that anybody should be able to do. We should all be able to document our stories. Um, and there needs to be, I think, a push for traditional newsrooms to understand that, possibly create programs and put resources into helping bridge that gap, right? So we're not just hiring from, from the journalism schools mm-hmm. and we're, we're, we're creating apprenticeships or creating programs, ways for people to be able to enter the profession, but also for us to not also think that the profession is the end-all and be-all of storytelling because it's not. We've been speaking with activist and writer Josmar Trujillo. You can find Copwatch Media online at copwatch.media and his work many places around the Internet, including fair.org. Thank you so much, Josmar Trujillo, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to sign up for our newsletter extra or to show support for the show if you are so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.